Okay, well, I hope you're ready. Buckle up, because this is going to be a ride. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom rivett Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we bring you the final episode of season five, where we look back at the season that's gone, the amazing episodes and the incredible guests we've had, and we provide some hints to what's coming in the fall for season six. Thanks for being here. So today marks the completion of another series of Outrage and Optimism. We're today concluding season five, which has been a remarkable privilege and such fun to put this together with both of you, Paul and Christiana, and our great team, including Clay and Sarah and others over the last few months. And in particular, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, which is really Mm. what makes this podcast possible. And also, of course, our sponsors, which is what also makes the podcast possible. But today we're (laughs) going to close out by playing some clips of some of our favorite episodes. But just before we do, this is actually rather a special day because if you've been following the news, what you will have identified is that over the last few months, we've been really hoping that the US would come forward with something meaningful in terms of legislation. And actually, it looks now like it might well happen. Senator Manchin and Chuck Schumer came together to announce a package of legislation that includes much of what we hoped would be possible on climate. And it looks now like they're actually coming together to do that. So that is a remarkable piece of news for us to end our season on. You want to talk about optimism, Tom? The biggest and most consequential climate change bill ever passed by the Congress, assuming it goes through, and we believe it will, that is absolutely stunning and could change the direction for the whole world insofar as we rely on the USA to provide a certain measure of leadership. And what I think is absolutely fantastic is that this bill is called the Anti-Inflation Bill. Mm. That, to me, is such a recognition that action on climate change is, yes, of course, environmental protection. It's also about international security, et cetera, et cetera. But it is absolutely fundamentally economic growth, safe economic growth. So the fact that they have been able to put it out as an anti-inflation that actually reduces the cost of energy um, is just fantastic because finally, finally, we have understood what decarbonization is all about. Absolutely. Jobs, anti-inflation, health, these are the issues that motivate people. So it's great to see politicians now talking in those terms and hopefully this will land in the coming months we'll know much more when we come back in september a day to celebrate a day to celebrate it's a day to celebrate absolutely so back to today it's been quite a year for the global community we've seen putin's invasion of ukraine stark reports from the ipcc food crises energy crises cost of living crises severe global energy events and now of course this potential breakthrough in legislation in the US. So there's been some forward progress, some significant headwinds, and today we're gonna revisit those months by playing some of our favorite clips and narrating you through them to remind you what the last six months of life on this planet as we try to deal with the climate crisis have really been like. So without further ado, here's the episode. So before Putin invaded Ukraine, and we began facing what we now understand to be the global energy, food, and cost of living crisis, or rather, should I say, the cost of survival crisis for millions of people. 
We started 2022 with our own collective sense of personal grief at the sad passing of Thich Nhat Hanh, the founder of Plum Village Monasteries and my own spiritual teacher since 2013. Now, our loyal listeners will have often heard all of us talk about the importance of a mindset shift on this podcast and how personal and spiritual transformation are the essential starting points for tackling this work, how we begin to work inside in order to prepare us for the work that we do on the outside, which means that for us, it is the how we do our work or how we turn up in the world before we can even begin grappling with, with the what. What are we going to do out there? What is the task in front of us? And for me personally, it is uh, very much part of my journey as a student of Buddhism and, in particular, as a very, very fortunate student of Thai's teaching, Thai being um, teacher in Vietnamese and what Thich Nhat Hanh's students call him. And so in March of this year, as I went to Plum Village to help the, uh, the monks and the nuns who were supporting the comms around Thai's passing in Vietnam, I agreed to be interviewed by uh, the abbot of Plum Village and by our good friend Joe Confino, and I spoke very openly about how this path of learning has influenced my own personal and professional life. Um, in particular, the teaching that I remember was incredibly helpful to me there was no mud, no lotus. And I thought, okay, I am drowning in mud, so there better be lots of lotuses here. <laughs> Where are the lots of lotuses? Because <laughs> there's a lot of mud. <laughs> um, uh, and then later on, what I discovered is it was transformative. His teachings were transformative for the negotiation process. And that's where, you know, that that's where I, you know, I, I just, I'm in such awe of the power of his understanding, the power of his insight, because the, the connection, the interbeing between what we have inside of us, what we discover inside of us, and what we nourish, or in his words, what we water inside of us, and what is possible outside is so interlinked. And that is such a beautiful discovery because we tend to think that, you know, if we are on a path of spiritual development, that only has to do with me, but it doesn't have anything to do with the outside world. And it does. They are just absolutely, you know, it's like, it, it's all completely interwoven with each other. And so I do, I have publicly, in fact, I think an interview with you, Joe, was the first time mm. that I publicly credited um, Thai's teachings and my understanding uh, of Thai's teachings with the fact that 195 nations were able to come to an agreement. I know it's quite an incredible thing to stop and think about. Um, First of all, Christiana, thank you for sharing so deeply mm. because actually um, we were discussing in 
last podcast, um, you know, about, about after Ty's passing, thousands of people were getting in touch and many of them were saying, you saved I got my in life. touch, he saved my life. Yes, you saved mine. And, um, and he saved yours and he, without his teachings, the Paris Climate Agreement mm-hmm. may not have happened. Yes. Which is quite an extraordinary mm. thing to be able to say. Mm. Christian, take us a little bit into the journey of the negotiations in terms of Ty's teaching. So, you know, he talks about deep listening, about compassion, about sort of staying calm. You know, there, there are many parts of his teaching, but what what would you say were the, the core of the help he brought to the negotiations in terms of that? Two things I would highlight, not because it's only two, just because um, for me they were perhaps the most, yeah, transformational. One was the skill of deep listening. And my experience was there were 195 countries that to every single one of the 70-something issues that were under negotiation, they had at least three opinions. So you multiply that, right? 195 times three opinions times 76. I mean, it was just an incredible chess game there. Uh, And they had very, very different and sometimes factually and objectively mutually exclusive positions. Um, And... In a negotiation, typically what happens is that every country comes with their position to the table. And the purpose of them coming around the table is to inform everybody else of their position. Nobody really comes to listen. (laughs) Mm. And um, so I I had to do in my my role there, I did have to go and um, meet with government officials from almost every country in their capital city. And if I didn't meet them in their capital city, then certainly when they came to the negotiations. But I made it a really incredibly educational practice to ask them questions and listen to the answers instead of me preaching to them what I thought needed to be done or what somebody else thought it needed to be done. So asking them questions about what their long-term interest was, how they saw themselves growing as a nation, how they were going to protect their um, their people. Um, many, many questions that led them to move from their short-term thinking to much more longer-term thinking and more inclusive thinking. And the more they move into the future and into broader thinking, the more there is an overlap and a coincidence of interest. If you stand in your very tiny little short-term nationalistic interest, then you can imagine that there's not much overlap in that Venn diagram. But if you expand that and and they really begin to understand what is their responsibility in the future, um, now the Venn diagram is very different and there begins to be the emergence of common ground. So that was, but that you can only do if you're truly listening to what they're saying and then reflecting back to them so that they begin to see that there is a coincidence there in that Venn diagram. So the art of, of deep listening, um, in, in, in addition to the personal work, uh, where I also practice it, but for my, for my 
professional work was incredibly helpful. And the other thing that I wanted to highlight is one of the main difficulties, if not the main difficulty, in any climate negotiation then, and sadly also now, but at that point it was the divide between the global north and the global south. And the global south feeling very much as a victim to what the global north, industrialized countries, have done. And there's no doubt that objectively they are the cause of climate change. That's not ideology, that's not a belief, that's a fact. And so the global south countries, the developing countries, to a a big degree are very justified in feeling as a victim. The problem with entering a conversation or negotiation as a victim is there's no way you're ever going to agree with anyone on anything. Because if you perceive yourself as a victim, you are implicitly accusing somebody else of being a perpetrator. And that other person who's being accused of being a perpetrator is never going to sit and happily take on the mantle of perpetration. They're going to turn around and say, ah, but what you did is even worse than what I did. And there you go into the seesaw of accusations and blame. And so it was so interesting for me to see that if I saw myself in my personal life as a victim of what my husband had chosen to do with his life, that there was no way that I could go into my professional work and expect anything other than a victim-perpetrator dynamic because of interbeing, because the energy that I carry into that dynamic is there. And I'm only watering the seeds the wrong seeds of being a victim or being a perpetrator. Whereas if I can walk in with a different mindset and understand, first of all, that I am not a victim, that I have the tools to understand myself differently, um, and that so does everyone else. And then you walk in with a very different energy. And because of the most amazing concept that, well, so many amazing concepts, but the concept of dependent co-arising or codependent arising, depending on which book you read, but is that these seeds, these traits, these feelings, these paradigms, these dynamics actually evolve at the same time, and they're all interconnected, even if that's not evident. And that was such a lesson to me, such a lesson to me, to understand, okay, my first responsibility is for me to get out of my victimhood. That's my first responsibility. And otherwise, I cannot expect anyone else to do that. And so that put quite a bit of pressure on me, right? It's like, okay, you better get your little, (laughs) your, your ducks in a row. But I saw it happen. I saw it happen because in the process of me getting out of my own victimhood, then in my conversation with so many other government representatives, I began to see that lift. And I began to see the emergence of very, very different dynamic. That's your lotus. 
Those are the thoughts. Yes. <laughs> so, Christiana, thank you. So, so there's so. Much- this was the episode that got the most feedback from our listeners, Christiana. An example comes from Andy Clee, who writes, "Wow, what a fantastic episode! For me, it links so many of the themes from previous episodes, connecting our heads and hearts, and enlightened self-interest in particular." The timing is perfect too, as I've been thinking about my future pathway and how I, as a 50-something, help my community and our young people in particular build the world they want. I now have a clearer idea of my role. Somewhere in there is an opportunity to heal nature and ourselves. And thank you, Christiana, not only for your amazing work, but for being so brave and honest with us in this episode. Mm. The problem that remains, however is that outside of these incredible groups like Plum Village and Findhorn, which I love very much, how do we communicate the threat and opportunities to a wider audience, especially in the face of such a barrage of disinformation? Paul, I so agree with you. I completely um, share the perspective that this is just one of the critical issues that we have not yet made the progress we need to make. And that is a jump that's going to have to come in the coming months and years. But it also refers back to actually what turned out to be one of my favourite interviews this year. And that was with the Hollywood director Adam McKay, just after his film Don't Look Up, which starred Jennifer Mm. Lawrence and Leo DiCaprio and so many others, smashed Netflix records after its Christmas Eve release last year. Um, It was a self-referential film in many ways, acknowledging the difficulties of using the tools of popular culture, like the news, social media, film and art, to try to communicate an existential threat of course, in this case, represented by an asteroid that was on a collision course with the Earth. Not unlike, of course, our increasingly extreme weather that, of course, has become that much more extreme even than it was when this film came out. And Christiana started the interview by asking him if it was true that the 2018 IPCC report really led to the script of Don't Look Up, which had become a kind of urban legend when the film came out. But with that IPCC report, what became glaringly apparent, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, the IPCC report is very conservative. There are dozens and dozens of countries that have to approve those scientific findings. So it gets filtered and filtered and filtered. Mm. So for that report to be that alarmist and that Mm. concerned really shook me. And I had two, three nights where I couldn't sleep as I started, as as the whole picture started to come into focus. And because of that report, I started reading a lot of other books, talking to a lot of other people. David Wallace Wells is a friend. I read his book, Uninhabitable Earth, Mm. which added to my uh, poor sleeping habits. And... It's kind no of in doubt. the title, Adam. It's we- in the title. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm sure that came as no surprise. Uh, and then, you know, social media is, for the most part, a, a, a destructive hellscape. But one of the <laughs> great, great things on social media is you can talk to a lot of renowned climate scientists. And I've gotten to know them through the years. So I reached out to a bunch of them and started asking questions. And the answers I got were far from comforting. So from that point on, my whole worldview shifted and I felt an urgency in my bones. And I started looking at the world around us in a very, very different way. And ever since then, I've been operating under the assumption 
that this is coming. And then the most recent piece of information I heard was a climate, uh, a piece of climate modeling from a group called Climate Analytics that said mm-hmm. that in uh, by the year 2030, half of our days will be once every hundred year uh, heat events. Wow. And I can't shut up about it. And everyone I talk to in the media, I just say, why are you not reporting on that? I mean, that is massive, massive news. Um, so yeah, it's been quite the journey. It's not been pleasant, but at the same time, I'll always choose being awake over being asleep. Hmm. Um, and the good news is it led to this movie. Uh, I felt after I had this awakening that it, it just, I, I don't know if I can ever do anything ever again that isn't at least related to the biggest story, empirically speaking, the biggest story in human history. Um, So yeah, this is the biggest story in human history. It's the greatest threat to life in 66 million years. And uh, I feel a little bit like I'm living in a crazy house, a crazy world, because I turn on the news and they don't talk about it. You see our leaders and you can tell they don't really feel the reality in their bones of what we're facing. Um, and so it, it's it's really changed my life. Mm. Well, just hearing you say that... We will return to Adam's interview in a minute. But first, let's just compare the... Um, impact that uh, the 2018 IPCC report had on Adam to what is happening actually right now. The IPCC published in the first half of this year two reports that are uh, the second two parts of the first part that they released in August of last year for their current cycle. And it's really interesting that those reports, the sum total of those reports, had the same stark effect on both the climate and economic and political communities that Adam reports from his reading of the 2008 paper on the 1.5 degrees. This year, the Secretary General of the United Nations has called or has summarized rather the reports from the IPCC as being an atlas of human suffering. And our guest, Patrick Fercoyan, told us in his interview that the fundamental message of the report was adapt or die. The second IPCC report focused on mitigation, and we invited our good friend Co Barrett onto the show to explain in no nonsense language the urgency of this report's findings. Um, but it seems to me, Co, that um, the the time has always been such a oh, such such a frustrating component and factor of climate change. There is a time lag between that, which we must do now, and the evidencing of the impact of those measures or those policies. And so that's the other piece that I find so so challenging about time because the time lag between the actions that we take and the evidencing And yet, time is what we exactly don't have. Because as this report has told us, yet again, we have to front load all of this. 
It's not like we can just say, okay, well, we're going to do this and we're going to, we have plenty of time to do it and we can backload it because, you know, our, our timeline now is 2025 or 2030 or whatever. It's front loading. It's front loading to today. And um, how, how is the new IPCC dealing with that front loading of the efforts that need to be made? Well, um, first of all, I need to just totally agree with your, with your sense about this issue of time um, and the lack, the lack of it, <laughs> the lack of time that we have to solve this problem. Just front and center in this report and also in the other reports we've put out this, this cycle. Um, I mean, it is really clear, you know, if we're going to peak emissions in two and a half years or three years, I mean, there is no time. And then, as you say, Christiana, it's not like when we make those changes, there is an immediate um, benefit that stops climate change in its tracks. So, um, and all of that is really apparent in this report. But can I hit on a piece of the time thing that I found really interesting as we go through these IPCC reports in the last three years? You know, um, the Paris Agreement asked us to do the report on 1.5 degrees. It was in the decision. And um, at the time when we were putting that together, we thought, okay, we're going to do the best we can. Hopefully we have enough information to respond to um, the UNFCCC. I had no idea how that report would basically have um, focused the world on the, um, the idea that the time is absolutely now to make these changes. Because, you know, I think when you talk about two degrees in the future, theoretically, um, it's very easy to think, okay, yeah, we have time. We have time. That's far in the future. But the minute you start looking at 1.5 degrees, as this report does and others in this cycle, the only conclusion you can come to is that we have got to act now. We have got, we should have acted yesterday. Um, and we better get our butts in gear. The message from Co and the IPCC scientists rang loud in our ears. We better get our butts in gear. But if Adam McKay himself had experienced an apathetic response in the face of such clear science, what could we do to get the people motivated? We realised, however, perhaps it was not the people who were suffering from apathy. Let's hear from Adam on what happened when Don't Look Up went live. And the second they flicked that switch and it went live, it was the most incredible, borderline beautiful thing because what you saw, what, and usually this doesn't happen with comedies. Comedies don't cra cross cultural and, and national lines. But the movie was number one in 87 different countries. It was number one in Nigeria. It was number one in Pakistan, Brazil, Peru, Jeez. Argentina, Cambodia, uh, Canada, the U.S., France, like on and on. I'm, you know, 87 different countries. And what I realized at that moment is, you know, we, we like to think that most people are living under a rock or don't care, but it's the exact opposite. And it was really a wonderful thing. And just a reminder that no, 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 people get it. They do in their, in their, in their muscles, in their soul, they know the truth. Mm. And it was incredible. It was really a wonderful thing. Mm. Uh, Adam, 
So I think that final point from Adam is so critical that actually people are increasingly aware of this issue, but many people kind of don't know what to do. And that problem is made worse by the wall of media silence and disinformation and confusion that is being spread by some of the biggest media companies supposedly reporting on the climate crisis. So this tension between what the people want and what leaders and the media report is something that we heard Ben Goldsmith and Chris Skidmore talk about on our recent episode that was related to Boris Johnson's resignation as Prime Minister of the UK. So if the people were aware of the crisis and wanted action from their leaders, what movement or campaign could unite us with a clear directive? And here on Outrage and Optimism, when looking at the progress of tackling the climate crisis, we try and ask, as Christiana encourages us to do, not... What is the ideal situation and how do we create it? But rather, where is the needle and how can we move it? Now, the celebrated writer, historian and friend of the podcast, the very wonderful Yuval Noah Harari, takes this very approach with his campaign, hugely practical campaign, 2% more, which he came on the podcast in February to explain. That, you know, you have this one number, very important number that got a lot of attention, 1.5 degrees Celsius. We need to prevent uh, uh, global temperature from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius. But then when you look for the price tag, it's extremely difficult to find it. <laughs> and I, and I, not just me, but like I mean, my entire team spent weeks going over all kinds of reports and panels and articles and so forth. And it turns out that there, there, there is a number, or at least there are numbers. And of course, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to play with numbers. It's a, a lot of speculations and guesswork, but almost all the numbers, they are in the single digits, low single digits of global GDP. Uh, many of them are around 2% of global GDP. And this is like a wonderful piece of news because it means it's a feasible political project. 2% of global GDP every year is of course a lot of money, mm. but um, it's exactly the kind of project that modern political systems have been built to deal with. We don't need to invent a completely new kind of politics. Politicians, this is their typical job. But they wake up in the morning, they go to the office. What do they do? They move 2% of resources from here to there. <laughs> so that, I, I, love, I love that description <laughs> of the life of a politician. <laughs> you know, by the way, just a little thing. I think on COVID, they went to the office and they moved about 15% of GDP for yeah. about a year. You yes. Know? And, 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 yeah. and, you know, in the UK where I live, one in 500 people died of COVID and they moved 15% mm -hmm. of GDP. So, you know, it's interesting. You know, I used to work in the kind of logo business or the, you know, the, there are these powerful symbols like the cross or many, you know, agencies ban the bomb symbol. Maybe, you know, and I always laughed when US politicians started wearing like a, like a US flag. Like, I'm sure they know where they live. You know what I mean? But could we have, could we have a 2% badge? In fact, can mm. listeners start making 2% badges and we all start wearing a 2% badge and we'll all be saying to each other, come on, 2%, let's do it. We, we better yeah. do it soon, though, before it goes to 3%, which will happen at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Uh, I can hear the new call of young people, you know, the activists out on the street. 2% yeah. for 1.5. 2% for 1.5. Yeah. 
So as you can hear there, we love this idea for this campaign that Yuval Noah Harari came up with and the slogan that we created through that conversation, we felt potentially could be an amazing campaign for changing the world. But he also touched on something deeper at the heart of the problem of stirring people to action that Adam McKay also spoke about in his interview. The power of stories that we use to define ourselves and our values. You know, Tom always picks up on this story and narrative idea. Have you noticed that? That is one of Tom's leitmotifs in life. There were several years in which you really didn't like the word story, Christiana, but I think you're quite I comfortable know, with I it know. now. I've been, I've been pushing back on you, but actually I've decided that is not a battle that I want to pick with you. So I have totally embraced ah. your concept of story and narrative. So is that because you actually think it's useful or because you just don't want to have to have, have the conversation anymore? I'll give another example from, from, from the Middle East. Um, you know, in, in, in Jerusalem, there is a certain wall, and near the wall, there is a certain building. <laughs> and if anybody would say, take one stone out of the wall, or one stone out of the building, or, or, or blow them up, all hell will break loose. Indeed. We are talking about millions and hundreds of millions of people all over the world that never been to Jerusalem uh, are rising up in arms. And um, this is just about one war, which they never even visited. Hmm. And then you think about the Great Coral Reef, which was built not by a bunch of people 2,000 years ago, but by billions of organisms over millions of years. If you think about the Amazon rainforests, and they're in danger, and people say, yeah, it's bad, but I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Why is it? Why, yes. That the kind of this war has so much more emotional power than the Great Coral Reef or than the Amazon rainforest. It's not because one is acute and the other is chronic. It's because some people, at least, have been raised on, on stories about this wall and not about the Great Coral Reef. Mm. But it's in the end, in the, in the stories that we are told and that create this kind of emotional engagement, if we can create the same type of emotional engagement uh, with the Great Coral Reef or with the Amazon rainforest, then, yeah, you can mobilize a lot of people to take very strong action. Stories need to be kind of engaging and simple. One of the reasons to focus on, on the 2% number is that it's a simple number. It's easy to grasp it. So whenever we try to uh, create powerful stories that will get translated into political projects, we need powerful symbols, and we need to keep things as simple as possible. Hmm. Yuval, that is such a beautiful... Yuval closed the interview by referencing the threat of Putin invading Ukraine and the effect this could have on our collective efforts to stop climate change. But let's remember, Putin had not yet invaded Ukraine, and here is Yuval already foreseeing the impact on climate change efforts. Yuval's words turned out to be prophetic. He is so smart, I think he might be able to predict the future. I mean, he did. Because on 24th of February, Putin did give the order for Russian troops to invade Ukraine. 
and the rest of the global community began to react to the threat of sanctions on Russian oil. And it quickly became apparent just how reliant much of the global community was on Russian oil and gas, and energy prices began to spike, causing alarm throughout the world. The road ahead forked into two paths, both claiming to offer routes out of the global energy crisis. One path called for more fossil fuel production, and the other saw this as... Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Christiana. This is like, it's, you know, we've got to cheer the team, right? And the other called Get for... Get ready. The perfect moment to double down Yay! on the transition to green energy. Yes! yes, 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 yes. And people may be unsure which path we were promoting, but actually, clearly, this is the moment to get ourselves off that crazy dinosaur slurp called oil and gas. Let's kick off with you. How do you see this situation? Well, analogies, as we know, are always imperfect and incomplete because realities are so much more nuanced um, and intricate. But a possible analogy that we could use to understand where we are could be the following. So let's uh, entertain the scenario that I am a patient that has been diagnosed with lung cancer caused by smoking, decades of smoking. The cancer is not yet terminal, but getting very close, and I have all kinds of medical warnings about that. In addition, on top of that, I learned that the provider of the cigarettes that I've been smoking is a terrible bully and is using the money that I pay him, in this case it is a him, for the cigarettes to do horrible things to other people, literally kill other people. So here is the question, how do I react? How do I respond? What are my choices? So one option, of course, is to decide that the problem that I'm actually facing is, uh, is the bully himself and that I need or want to continue smoking. So the solution to that problem is for me to start planting tobacco in my own backyard and to start my own little home rolling industry so that I can produce my own cigarettes. And that way, I don't have to buy from the bully. I'm not giving him my money, but I continue to smoke despite the immediate threats to my health. That is one option, and that is being put forward as an option to the Russia-Ukraine crisis by some white people. The other option that we have is to say, whoa, wait a minute, I can actually use this moment to choose to break my addiction to smoking despite the fact that it has had me in chains for decades. I can choose to break the addiction altogether and move to healthier habits. That means I no longer pass my money to the bully, I starve the bully of his income, and I save my own life because I stop smoking and uh, put myself into the recovery treatment that gets me to much healthier status. So that's great. And let's, let's devolve this down to a sort of a clear, rational argument about what we think the way forward is. And Christiana, I love your analogy. And in that analogy, of course, the idea of planting tobacco so we can continue smoking when it's killing us, of course, is insane. And what you're describing there is the tendency in some countries to now increase domestic production so they can keep consuming. You said at the beginning that no analogy is perfect. And of course, the one there is nobody needs cigarettes, but we do need energy to a certain degree. And what we need to do is actually shift it to a cleaner source of energy. But 
From what we've said already, the moral case to ban, as far as we can in the West, to ban imports of Russian gas and oil is overwhelming. Um, Indeed, the Ukrainian climate scientist who serves on the IPCC spoke out recently and specifically said that Russia is using the money the West has spent on fossil fuels against Ukraine in the war. But Europe is currently resisting the idea of a complete ban. So the moral case for a ban is clear. The economic case against a ban is clear because it would lead to a massive spike in energy prices and potentially blackouts. What's the climate case? From a climate perspective, do we think it makes sense to ban Russian sales of oil and gas into Western Europe and North America? Well, let's start by underlining that it really is our addiction to oil and gas that has paid for Russia's invasion for the Ukraine. That is quite different to other fossil fuel-related geopolitical confrontations that we've seen in the past where there is an attack in order to protect either the provision of or the transport of fossil fuels. That's quite different. This is not about that. This is the funding that uh, is being used for the invasion of the Ukraine is coming straight from our pockets, we who are addicted to oil and gas. To put it very clearly... and, and actually, not to, sorry to interrupt your flow, but I mean, we've also financed the Saudi strikes in Yemen by the same logic, right? And most conflicts throughout history have been based on this kind of dynamic. And then the, all these kind of, you know, thoughtful people are saying, well, you know, we're in a new kind of the, the great game of world powers and we've got to drill and give ourselves energy independence. And that's rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. And I, and I ask myself this question, why do we feel so powerless? You know, what is this great force that stopped us believing in anything, which is where I feel we are at the moment? You know, once again, you, you look at your media and you see already 2.6 million Ukrainians have had to leave everything, their homes, their country, their friends, their family, their lives, their work, and, and just run away across the borders to get away from, from the war. And why I think so many people love um, President Zelensky of Ukraine is because he believes in something. And by believing in him, we begin to believe in ourselves again. And that's an important kind of, you know, kind of muscle that we've not exercised for, for far too long. Putin, this kind of evil puppet master, has been manipulating our democracy and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about that. We all know how much evidence there is of that. But look, here the puppet master's come out from behind the scenes and started blowing up our neighbor's children in front of us with our money. So we wake up now. That's the moral case, right? Absolutely. Um, and Christian, So in addition to our own views on the subject, we invited two former secretaries of state for foreign affairs of the UK, William Hague and David Miliband, of differing political parties. William Hague, of course, a conservative, David Miliband, a Labour politician, to add their analysis to the crisis that was unfolding from a defence point of view. So here's William Hague first. Have to do. And uh, the, as you know, people often when faced by higher energy prices, some people make the argument, well, we, we can't afford then at the moment to invest in cleaner energy. And you hear that argument in the United Kingdom sometimes, I'm ashamed to, to say. Um, so there is some negative effect. And, and Germany uh, confronting its dependence on Russian gas could easily end up burning more coal, which is the worst thing of all to do from a, as, as you have often pointed out, from a global point of view. But of course, in the longer term, well, this is, none of this would be happening if Russia was not a country based on a corrupt 
pyramid of financial and political power based on oil and gas revenues and other countries dependent on its sale of those things. So we can really see that we can free ourselves from some of the causes of conflict in the future uh, if we encourage the energy transition. Mm. Mm. William, I mean, you've answered part of this already, but I'd love to just ask you, I mean, Putin is now dragging the world into an era of higher defence spending, more military priorities right at this moment, in the middle of this decisive decade. Whatever happens next, a large amount of the bandwidth of foreign ministers and defence ministers and energy ministers is going to be directed towards this. What, I mean, what do you think people can do to try to ensure that climate doesn't get lost in that mix? It feels like it's happening far away and there's not much we can really do about it. But what would you say will make the difference? Because now it feels like we need to just push on that right now? Well, it, it's just crucial to make the argument in every forum at every level that these things are related. Solving the problems of climate change can't be just ignored while this is going on. It's like, uh, we, we don't have to focus on that because we've got this immediate priority. They are actually linked. A, a world which um, has more decentralized provision of energy and more renewable, sustainable provision of energy wouldn't be in this situation. And there isn't going to be other answers. Not- and here's David Miliband approaching the Ukraine invasion from a defense and humanitarian perspective. Which is, which is dangerous. Now, I, I've said about the humanitarian situation, we, the world, have got to be able to walk, chew gum and play the violin at the same time. <laughs> that we've got to be able to address starvation in Afghanistan, a breakdown in Ethiopia, a tragedy, a crime in Yemen, um, uh, coups in the Sahel, and address the Ukraine crisis. Um, I think that if you want me to just throw one thing into the pot, what, what could, rather than predict the, the future, say, well, what could shape the future? I think the people PowerPoint is real. Big change happens when... There's government leadership, business and NGO innovation, and mass mobilization, but they don't have to happen in that order. Yeah. Um, the lesson of this crisis may be that people can move first, or businesses and NGOs can move first, and then governments run and catch up, but then they end up leading because they've got yeah. legitimacy and, and power. And so I don't want to just say, well, we've got to re- you know, redouble our efforts. That's, that's, that feels a bit pathetic. But I do think that this is interesting to hear the army generals say, morals and morale are the most precious commodity in war. Hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's about people. And so, look, David, it just seems like this extraordinarily kind of teachable moment in the world at the moment. I mean, you know, all these sanctions, and, I, you know, I can't even believe that the airspace of the uh, USA and, 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 you know, the EU is closed to, to, to Russian aircraft. I mean, you know, there's this, this, it's extraordinary what's going on. You know, we've talked about national security and energy independence now being the same thing. You know, maybe I'm being a bit Panglossian, a bit overhopeful, but could the world's democracies be in a moment of sort of rediscovering their values? Yes. I mean, I think that I said at the beginning that this was an attempt to rewind the clock by 30 years by Putin. Uh, what I also say is it may well be the moment when not that the clock is rewound to 1990, but the spirit of 1990 is rediscovered, with all, <laughs> tempered by mm. all of the failings that have happened since 1990. And that would be the ultimate irony, because remember, the pictures of people scaling the Berlin Wall, those were Mm. um, incredibly inspiring because they were people standing up for human values. And that's really important. So could this be a a moment that 
galv- uh, has this been a moment that's galvanized the West? It has. There's no question. And it's galvanized Switzerland to uh, move um, into this space as well. It's moved Ireland to constructively um, support the deployment of EU um, uh, military materiel. So that is significant. And we have to um, build on that with the unity and the humility, uh, but also the clarity about what's at stake. Well, what a a moment, uh, David. So buoyed up by David Miliband and William Hague's quiet optimism that within the depths of this crisis, there could also potentially be an opportunity for consensus and solidarity. We invited Kingsmill Bond on the show. We knew from the recent articles that he'd published that he very much saw the opportunity and the economic logic of doubling down on the green energy transition in the face of volatile prices and Putin's aggression. And his analysis really was making the point that anyone that believes that using this moment to go further into the oil and gas economy was just deluding themselves with short-term signals rather than really seeing the trends that were unfolding. However, we decided minutes before the interview, that even though we agreed with him, in order for our listeners to have faith in this route and having no doubt that despite all the media claims to the contrary, we'd at least need to put it to the test and the robustness of his arguments. So cue the newly titled Dame Christiana Figueres probing his arguments. And first, and God help us, hopefully last, appearance of Paul's deeply disturbing oily alter ego. Yes. Because I would love to believe that everything that we're seeing now is actually going to accelerate us into Mm. decarbonizing our economy and into investing even more into renewable energy. But is that wishful thinking or is that actually accurate reading of the crystal ball? Because we have Ukraine, we have inflation, And we have midterm elections coming up in the United States all at the same time. And of course, we have a sort of underlying commitment to decarbonization. But how is Ukraine inflation and midterm elections, how is that very dangerous triangle actually going to help us to accelerate decarbonization? So, so the question is, are we, or am I in La La Land uh, by imagining that Uh, We are indeed on track in this energy transition. And you were right to say that if it were politics alone that were driving this energy transition, uh, things would indeed look quite bleak. Uh, However, the primary driver of change here, as of course anywhere with transitions, is is economics. Um, and, And of course, uh, if I take your trifecta of, of problems, the midterm elections in the US, inflation and Ukraine, the, the thing that really stands out is Putin's war. And Putin's war, which has driven um, a spectacular increase in the cost of fossil fuels. And after that, I mean, really, it's just pretty simple. High prices drives a reaction, just the same as we saw in the 1970s with the oil price shocks. People scrambled around initially to try and find any other solution. All kinds of weird uh, devices and rationing were tried in the 1970s, but they eventually landed upon the only solution, which is the solution that that we are now embracing, will embrace, uh, which is uh, efficiency and faster 
deployment of uh, new energy technologies. So this, I guess, is the reason for my, uh, in spite of the the horror of Ukraine, uh, is the reason for my optimism about the energy transition is that we must and we are doing uh, efficiency and, uh, and and renewables deployment. Kingsmill, Kingsmill, how I want to agree with you, but Christiana has, Dame Christiana, Dame Christiana Figueres has given me the, and, and Tom the opportunity today to play the kind of person who's constantly I'm trying to argue with, and I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to it. Kingsville, you undermine your own argument, don't you? Think about it for a minute. Be realistic. Be realistic, Kingsville. Surely the higher prices for oil and gas make the business case to drill more oil and gas. And indeed, was it not President Biden, your democratic president, if you will, who used to talk about climate change, he himself now is is encouraging the oil and gas industry to drill. So surely now you must appreciate that these issues of energy independence it's must really hard to listen your, to this your tone, temporary concerns <laughs> about climate change. Be realistic, Kingsville. Give me an answer to the energy price crunch when there's such a good business case for drilling now. So it's kind of important to introduce this. The, um, the, the, uh, if I may, this is a, a, a simple failure of logic. You're, you're, this is producer logic um, versus rather than consumer logic. Uh, just because it costs a producer more money to produce something and therefore they get very excited and go and produce more of it doesn't mean that you as a consumer are actually <laughs> going to use the stuff. Um, and, and that's the absolutely key point, the, the key error, in fact, that the fossil fuel industry and its backers is making right across the board right now, which, which is that when you get a supply shock and you get artificially high prices free um, as, as a result of that sh- shock, sure, um, it, it's profitable to, to, to drill on a temporary basis, but they're forgetting the damage that it's doing to consumption. And it's consumption ultimately you know, in, our, in our society, which, 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 um, which has the power. And I will remind you, of course, that in the 1970s, when we had the two oil shocks um, in 1973 and 1979, you know, it was fabulous for the oil producers for a while. Um, but then um, uh, we had a massive increase in efficiency. We had a massive um, ramp up of the exciting new technology at the time, which was nuclear. Um, and, and as a result of those, um, ultimately, the uh, the fossil fuel industry sowed the seeds of its own demise. Because, um, in fact, as you know, in the 1980s, uh, demand stagnated uh, as a result of those two factors. And, and of course, ultimately, that was a factor in the uh, in the failure and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, you know, be careful what you wish for, I suppose, in the fossil fuel sector. Artificially um, high prices are not good for the industry. But um, I think the really, the other important point and, uh, uh, that needs to be stressed is that it is, of course, at times of stress that you do things that you struggled to do before. Um, so right across the world, the technology problems have been solved, the economics problems have been solved for the deployment of renewable energies and technologies at scale, but everywhere they face um, incumbents and inertia and laws and and, and systems tailored for the fossil fuel era. So now, in fact, is precisely the moment that we um, we can use to, 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 as it were, destroy and, and, and make a bonfire of, of all these old technologies and, and regulations. And, and, and actually, it is through crisis that you can drive change. So I would suggest, in fact, that Putin has um, set in train the very transition that he was uh, seeking, perhaps, to avoid. Hmm. 
Kingsmill, can I ask you a couple of questions? So this is While in the global north, all the news was focused on how Putin's war was threatening to derail the clean energy transition, fueling a cost of living crisis and stalling Biden's climate plans. Here... Until I'll, now! Until now! Until now! I'd forgotten how to be happy, actually. Anyway, um, here at Outrage and Optimism, we became quickly aware of how this was playing out in the global south and the continent of Africa in particular, where calls for Africa to invest in gas infrastructure and a drive to realise untapped fossil fuel reserves seem to be gathering more legitimacy, despite the damaging long-term effects this solution proposed, if you want to even give it the name solution. There was no doubt in our guest Rachel Kite's mind who was responsible for this. It is outrageous to me that the fossil fuel industry would stride around any country, but especially a country where the energy access gap is as large as it is in many sub-Saharan African countries, and suggest and suggest that they are the answer to energy poverty when they have not been the answer to energy poverty at any moment in their uh, recent history. And to use the same talking points that the coal industry were using 10 years ago, it's almost word for word, yeah, I think that's that's a good summary. And I think now, that's, that's as we know, our dear friend Rachel is not one to mince her words, so how wonderful to hear her say it like it is. However, in the true spirit of our podcast, she did retain some optimism that we could close the energy gaps despite the deployment of these underhand tactics. What gives me optimism is the extraordinary people who are out there um, with brilliant business models who should receive more investment, connecting people to electricity every day, giving people access to clean cooking fuels every day, um, developing uh, hyper-efficient uh, refrigerators and hyper-efficient devices that can use very little energy, the people who are electrifying clinics and schools yeah, you know, those are the people that that give me hope because they are doing it um, in very difficult uh, business enabling environments, very difficult investment climates, but they're doing it. And if we just got behind them for not very much money, we could close the energy access gap. Amen, or as my daughters say, a women. <laughs> <laughs> yes, many of them are women. A women. So we loved Rachel's optimism, that stubborn and determined optimism that we know and love her for. And of course, get such high marks on our podcast was wonderful in that conversation. And as the season went on, we continued to amplify the voices of various different guests, so many of whom were focusing on the good news and the momentum that we were building. Sophie Howe, for example, the Future Generations Commissioner in Wales, looking at how legislation can consistently benefit future generations, an amazing and inspiring position. And we also saw a new government in Australian elections, the rise of the incredible female-led teal independence that came out of nowhere committed to social environmental justice. Christiana then declared that teal was her new favourite colour. And just as the months went past, the unstoppable viability of clean energy became more clear as a real inevitable alternative to fossil fuels. There were mandates from the people for action on climate, growing acceleration in the business and investment community towards ESG and net zero business strategy. We worked to encourage and work with you, our listeners, who we know are often frustrated by the idea that no one's doing enough about the climate crisis. Not to give up hope. The truth is, loads of people are really committed to achieving change.
But by early summer, we found ourselves reading report after report about Biden's stalled climate legislation. No were, longer. No longer. It's true. We can lift our hearts now, but it was a difficult dark summer, if that's... Can you call it a dark summer? Anyway. Dark um, hot summer. Hot, sorry, very sorry, hot. Yeah, yeah, it was a dark a hot long, summer. long, lonely summer. Oh, anyway. Um, <laughs> But there were these nightmarish gas pump stickers that people were putting on saying, I did this with a picture of Biden looking stupid with a little little paper finger pointing to the gas price. These PR campaigns blaming Biden for rising energy prices. I wonder who put them up. Hmm. The rolling back of progressive policies also by the Republican stack Supreme Court. I mean, in the form of Roe versus Wade, you know, 50 years of, of, of kind Progress. of... Progress. On human rights. Yeah, 50 years of progress on human rights rolled back in 2022. Just outrageous. I started comparing the USA to Afghanistan. Anyway, and then we had the Virginia versus the EPA. Uh, this, this case saying that the EPA didn't have jurisdiction to do what it says on the name EPA. It said the Environmental Protection Agency wasn't allowed to protect the environment. Now, there were also growing attacks from all sides on the legitimacy of ESG reporting and net zero targets. And, you know, there's legitimate debate there, but this is clearly, you know, sinister in design to sort of uh, crush any effort to sort of avoid the apocalypse. And then we had the resignation of Boris Johnson in the UK during uh, a recent spate of extreme heat events. And, you know, there are many failings of Boris Johnson, but he had been closest to a Green Prime Minister the UK has had so far. And then we had the attacks on woke capitalism uh, prompted, well, including an extraordinary presentation from the now very ex-HSBC employee, Stuart Kirk, who made us question the collective sanity of the world. Yeah, and, and, and excuse me, excuse me. Did you say an extraordinary presentation? Is that? Can you define <laughs> extraordinary in in British language? You know, extraordinary is things like uh, you know a meteoroid destroying the yeah. earth. <laughs> extraordinary is like uh, you know the uh, volcano that, that that made Pompeii all turn into a. Or, so really, or rather a troubling would be or, a good phrase. Yeah, that rather cover. troubling, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah. okay, I would have yeah. called it outrageous presentation, but that's okay. Yeah, I have some I have some vivid memory, Paul, of a four-minute rebuttal that you gave us in the Rebecca Solnit interview, although I would just hasten while listeners have the 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 um the podcast on that we're not gonna replay it now. Uh, but it was wonderful. We really enjoyed it. It definitely was an itch I enjoyed scratching. Um yes. And it got Christiana rather riled up too, I seem to yeah, remember. Yeah, I remember I'm getting riled up quite a few times this year. Of stakeholder capitalism and and those whacks at it are called uh woke capitalism. And it's just fascinating to me that that profession, Paul, which you love, economics, that economists are capable of coming up with such two divergent views as to what money ought to be doing. And now here we go, right? Stage right, woke capitalism. Stage left or stage center or wherever you want to put it. Uh, we have sta- shareholder capitalism. What a battle. What a conceptual battle at a moment that is existential, right? This is not th- this, yeah. this is not an academic discussion. This is not an, an intellectual conversation about which one is better, which one is worse. No, 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 no. This is an existential moment. 
And I fear that those who are peddling woke capitalism do so because they can see that we are beginning to really move forward with shareholder capitalism with being able to put people, planet, and profit at the same level of purpose. And they're just trying to whack it down. And this is this is absolutely abominable, um, precisely because of the moment, the moment in which the destiny of humanity is in play. So, uh, Christiana, I would completely agree with that, and I would go further as well. I mean, if you look at the moment that we're in, right? So we, we now, after years of getting to this point, thanks to the good work of Paul Dickinson and many others, we're finally at a position where corporate disclosure of emissions and climate risk is about to be regulated in the US and the EU. That's a huge thing. It's going to have big financial implications for for companies. We're at a moment where fossil fuel companies are increasingly being starved of capital as we start to move into a divestment arena, um, era. And as a result of those things and many other things, we're now beginning to see organized pushback and an attempt to discredit the concept of ESG and net zero. And it's really frightening, right? This whole thing about woke capitalism. There are those out there who are spending serious money with communications agencies, creating very clever comms moments where they put these concepts out there to try to remove the legitimacy of what's happening. They try to politicize it, make it an issue that's only relevant of the left. And as a result of that, undermine what we've worked for decades to get to. We have to be front foot on this. And I would say this is as a battle of substance, but it's also we're also losing the comms battle at the moment because we're sort of slightly asleep about the fact that this is an orchestrated attack to try to bring these concepts down, and we need to be much more thoughtful about that. Yeah, and and, and look, at the heart of this... You know, okay, okay, so we were fully outraged but determined to keep our moral nerve in the face of this backlash, which, as Tom accurately points out has to be taken as a sign that the polluting incumbents are riled by a more permanent turning of the tide towards clean energy and progressive legislation. Although, now I must say, learning about the scale of suffering caused by the extreme weather events across the globe was horribly painful, especially as it seemed to coincide with some, even in the climate community, doubling down on their efforts to abandon net zero targets, or at least criticize what is understood as net zero. Well, I have to tell you, I woke up this morning with such a big, heavy stone in my stomach, because how is it possible that we are yet seeing rising emissions when Europe is blistering, scorching, frying. I don't even know what verb to use. So I will leave the UK to Paul. But buckle up because here is just a tiny little sense of what is going on. In Portugal, one person died every 40 minutes. I repeat, one person died every 40 minutes between July 7 and 13. In Luisa, a city in the center of Portugal, it hit a record 46.3 degrees Celsius, 115 Fahrenheit just a few days ago. Farmers are not even able, if their crops are still there, they can't even go out and harvest the crops. Spain, 30 fires raging across Spain. There, again, people dying between July 10 and July 15. 
check this out because Tom, you know, in our book, we said that the heat would get so hot that people wouldn't be able to walk out on the street. Do you remember that? But yeah. that was for 2050. Right. This is 2022. And in Madrid, you have a 60-year-old man who was working as a street cleaner in Madrid City Council, collapsed on Friday, died. His body was 41.6, 106 degrees Fahrenheit when he was discovered dead. His body frying on the streets. Honestly, what the hell? Has heat completely burned our frontal lobe that we cannot bring these two things together? Heat is being caused. This extraordinary heat is being caused by climate change. And climate change is caused by greenhouse gas emissions. Hence, we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I am into total outrage today, in case you haven't noticed. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Christiana. And of course, behind your outrage always is uh, empathy and, and care and love and that makes it all the, all the stronger and more intense. I mean, look. So here we are after these terrible heat waves swept across Europe. And as ever, we've tried to work alongside you, our listeners and partners in this wider community, trying to balance the grief and outrage with empathy, care, love and unwavering determination to stay the course and keep shining the light on the path we need to take to transform our global community to a safer, cleaner and regenerative future. Well, amen. But we know that this is not an easy path. Uh, If it were easy, we would have been on this path decades ago. We don't do this work because it's easy, but because it is the morally right thing to do. Now, here's the cool thing. On top of it being a moral imperative, it is also the economic imperative. So what is there not to like about the coincidence of those two? And we have no choice but to do this work because of the scale of the risk facing so many millions, billions of people. And all the guests on our show share this belief in their own work and we support and amplify their voices of hope, grit and empathy to show that a different type of future is still possible, the future we choose. Let's hear from some of their voices now. Here's Vanessa Nakate on the importance of hope. Because for me, hope is that strength that we need, you know, to continue, you know, doing activism. Personally, if I have no hope, then it's hard for me to speak out. If I have no hope, then it's hard for me, you know, to continue demanding for justice. But I feel like when there is hope, then there is a vision that you carry in your mind, you know, in your heart about the kind of future that you want. So I think hope is that thing that makes me believe that, you know, another world is not only necessary, but actually possible for all of us. And just to- and of course, our collection of guests would not have been complete without Bill McKevin. Mm. He came on the show to talk about his new organization, newish, third act, mobilizing people over 60 to act on climate change. Third Act is this new operation we've set up in the last year aimed at organizing for people over the age of 60. And uh, people by their tens of thousands have been showing up. What we lack at the moment is the financial resources to have enough staff to deal with the overwhelming flood of volunteers. But that's a good kind of problem to have. The question of whether we can organize people uh, in sufficient numbers is an open question. But I think if you were being optimistic, and I am being optimistic at the moment, 
what we would say is this is a very interesting group of people. Uh, the theory is that people become more conservative as they age for some of the reasons that you described, Christiana. But this particular generation has interesting historical DNA. Uh, if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s now, you were around in your first act for the some of the most potent cultural, social, political transformation in the history of the planet. You know, we were you were around for the moment when we began to take women seriously as equal parts of the population, when the civil rights movement was at its apex, when people really began to question whether or not war was a good idea. So if you want to pressure Washington or any national capital that has elections, <laughs> it would be a good idea to get some older people. But also now we have two great gifts. One is some time and the other is, um, well, kids and grandkids mm. who take yes. this question, they, they take the question of the future and of legacy and move it from the category of abstraction into the category of love, you know? Yeah. And, and that- Morality knocking personally at our door. Yes, that's a very good way to say it. The activist Leah Thomas, whose work with her organization Intersectional Environmentalist, was particularly inspiring, and her comments on the positive benefits of polarization led to a mindset shift of our own on the team. And about polarization, um, I'm not sure if polarization is always a bad thing. When we look back at the civil rights movement, there was a point in time where it was about almost 70% of Americans, um, white Americans that were polled, um, did not like Martin Luther King Jr. And they thought that he was too extreme. So at the time, it was probably really polarizing. And we're talking about Martin Luther King, not even Malcolm X in the specific Gallup poll that was taken and like the early civil rights movement. Um, at the time, I'm sure there were people who thought this, you know, our world is so divided, but I feel like history and looking back at history is often a better, I don't know, because we can clearly look back and say maybe it was polarizing at the time, but advocating for civil rights was probably a good thing. So I Absolutely. think a lot of things <laughs> are really polarizing right now. Um, but maybe it's for a reason. Maybe it's because we're at kind of a brink of we need to do better when it comes to social justice and we need to do better when it comes to environmentalism. And I think things will be less polarizing over time. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I just want to make sure it that... Does. And of course, we cannot forget the inspiring Not Too Late campaign that Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Lutonatembois came on the show to explain to us a true antidote to combat the doomism and climate grief that sometimes threatens to engulf the climate weary. It's really important, urgent, more important than anything, to make the best choices and not let the worst choices, the choices the fossil fuel powers want uh, to make. And, you know, and you talk to the people who are most informed and they literally say that it, it's urgent. We're running out of time. It's an emergency, but an emergency means things are still happening, not that it's over. And so it is, according to them, not too late. And so we're here to just try and bring people to strengthen the best possibilities and um, help help choose them, help shift what happens. So much of 
the crisis now is also a crisis of imagination. If people can't see the world that we can build, it'll be hard for them to then step up and take action and know what to do and where to put their energy and and where to put their hands. And so a lot of what we want to do is um, not just guide people on how to uh, not be overwhelmed by grief, but also help them see the different possibilities, the solutions that are out there, the, the different ways of being. There are so many communities right now who are building solutions and a lot of them are on the front lines. And so if we help showcase, you know, here's what's possible, then people can see it. Um, Too often we get trapped in the world of doom and gloom and apocalypse and we have to fight back and show people, no, like another world is possible. Um, So that's another part of this project. And, and, um, it's a pretty simple project and we just hope the website is kind of that bomb that people can turn to when when they're having those hard days and they can just turn turn to that and get some guidance and reflection on like okay here's how I move from grief to action here's my reminder of the world that we can create. Can you speak to that moving from one of the most inspiring episodes for me was Mayor Sadiq Khan of London. Paul, was this the episode where you made your bid to stand for office? I... Wait a second. That's, I don't know how many times <laughs> he has made that bid, but it's always for a different office. So which which of the offices was he putting himself up for this Come on, time? Paul, we've got about we've got a warehouse of different t-shirts ready for I different... I don't know about uh, offices. I'm, I'm, I'm on a podcast with Dame Christiana Figueres, who, who, is, a, who is a commander of the British Empire. I, I'm, I'm with Tom Rivet Karnak OBE, and I'm just feeling bereft of stature. Frankly, that's the thing. Who am I? We're, we're not buying it, but yes. <laughs> and I, you've heard me say it before, but the reason why we've got such a problem with climate change is because there has been malfunction, malfunction of the nation state as a political unit. And not surprisingly, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about corporations. We've spent a lot of time talking about institutional investors. And as you so rightly say, we can now look at cities as a critical, critical political unit. It's going to come up uh, later, but it's such a great phrase that I can't help repeating it now so people might remember it. The 19th century was the century of empires. The 20th century was the century of nation states. And the 21st century is the century of cities and mayors. And I think that the heart of it, and I'm, I'm about to conclude with a sort of, you know, a summing up type statement. <laughs> the heart of it is that the, is the city is a political unit of a, of a comprehensible scale. The governance of the city, the way the city looks and feels, its peoples and its spirit and its conduct is, is present. There's not a kind of north and a south that are 100 or 1,000 kilometres apart. It's one place, one people, one set of principles, one accountability and one opportunity for us to take some action on climate change. That's why cities are critical. Are you running for office, Paul, yeah, in some city? He's always running for office. He's just not sure which one. I'm available. Yeah. I'm available to run for office. <laughs> if you talk to my agent, it sounds a lot like me uh, on the same phone number and email, but it's obviously different because they're my agent. But I'm available. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. They're very, very helpful. <laughs> in all seriousness... I do think that the role of cities have become more and more powerful over time. And it was the perfect opportunity to see what 
Mayor Khan made of my theory of politics with a small p. And I think if you remember correctly, he did rather agree with me. Rather. Rather agree with you. I, I love, though, that your conclusion of that remarkable and sweeping conversation with Mayor Khan is that what you may remember most is that he agreed with you on something. Well, I mean, you, you can't underestimate but, but, that but, quality but of someone. But Paul doesn't remember what he agreed with him. It's not, not the point, is it? <laughs> don't remember particularly where the ball landed on the court, simply who won the tennis Clay, match. can you find anywhere that Mayor Khan agreed with Paul? If so, play it now. <laughs> okay, here we go. And... Um, I actually kind of think one of the biggest problems in the world is that the public haven't been told by their politicians how much trouble we're in or how serious these problems are. And there is, there does seem to be a new kind of um, administrative excellence being demonstrated by the cities. It's a, it's a question I'm putting to you really as, as, a, as a politician with more than a million people voted for you specifically. Have we got a new kind of politics coming? A, a politics with a small p, a non-party politics, a, par, a politics of administrative excellence looking after the basic system conditions that our society depends on? Spot on. Look, one of the reasons why I gave up being a, you know, a member of parliament, I, I had the pleasure of being cabinet and shadow cabinet and ran to be mayor, is it's less tribal, Paul. Uh, and listen, I'm somebody who can be quite a pugilist. I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's a tribal left of centre. But actually, you've got to build coalitions. You're spot on. And when you're a mayor or running to run a city, you start having conversations with people you didn't in the past. Not just public, private. You know, I've got friends who represent the Green Party, represent the Liberal Democrats, represent the Conservatives. And they're allies. And you've got to reach across the political divide because... All of us share the same space here. And this coalition building is really, really important. And, you know, you can't work in silos, not just in terms of, you know, political parties, but in terms of regional government, local government, national government, the private sector, uh, you know, bringing in green finance, really important. And one of the things you'll see... And in the second Future Food episode this season, we were invited to consider a food system that offered long-term resilient solutions to the crisis that the war in Ukraine was exacerbating. And one of the most exciting solutions offered came from CEO of Eat Just, Josh Tetrick. And they are developing animal protein without the need for a live animal to be slaughtered. Isn't that wonderful? You don't need all that land. You don't need billions of animals. You don't need all that stuff that, that goes into it. Um, and it means countries like Singapore, which I'm, I'm, um, I'm in right now, um, can build their own food security. You can make meat without hundreds, hundreds of millions of acres of land. And I think that's why Singapore is taking such a leadership in this. China, just a couple months ago, um, integrated this idea of making meat free of slaughter into their five-year agricultural plan, which is a really significant step that China took. Um, U.S. regulators are beginning to pay a lot more attention to it. Um, and, you know, I encourage people who are listening to this. Imagine there's been a lot of talk recently about, you know, what does it look like for us to be a multi-planetary species? Just imagine that we were colonizing another planet. No one would ever suggest that we use a third of that planet to plant soy and corn for animals that these new residents of the planet might want to eat. We, of course, would think differently about it. We would have new and more thoughtful approaches to enjoying chicken and beef in the, in the pork that we, we want. Um, and we think, um, we think this is one of them. So how can you see this rolling out at scale? What are the enabling conditions that you need? So as we look back at these last six months, despite 
everything that the world has thrown at us. Mm, and there was a lot. We, and there was a lot. We must admit that there is still an overwhelming sense that the world is full of good people doing good things and working hard to make sure we pass through that closing but still barely open window of opportunity to make a real difference. So let's let our wonderful guest, Gina McCarthy, who we had on the podcast, have the last word. We can move forward and make new demands on the market because we know that for the first time in history, we have technologies that can work and work cheaper than fossil fuels. So the breadth of opportunities on the on just the pure regulatory side are gigantic. You match mm-hmm. that with things like the bipartisan infrastructure law, which are investments that keep sparking new. You take a look at what we're doing in the transportation sector, just with EVs alone. The auto industry itself says we're going there most 100% by 2035, right? Right, when right. You Look at solar. It is winning hands down. Billions of private dollars are being invested. Every single week, we are talking about work that we can do in the market today that we've never had the opportunity before. And we can do it and push it with investments as well as regulation in ways that is going to save people money, grow lots of jobs, and instead of going backwards to hang out with the fossil fuel industry, we're going to outrun them because the market has changed. The market is now billions of dollars in investment in this stuff. So we are no longer going to be front running everything. We're going to be underpinning so it can never go backwards while we front run those things that continue to be essential to our public health safety and our kids' future. So thank you to all of our incredible guests this season. It's been an amazing ride. We've had the best time doing this podcast. It has just continued to be such a lot of fun. We've really enjoyed it. And thank you to the guests we featured today and also those we were unable to feature on this episode. Your contributions were no less valid and we're incredibly grateful to you for helping us make season five such a success. And particularly to you, our listeners, whose feedback and support has been so invaluable to us. As I said at the top of this episode, we're now taking a break for August. We'll be back in September, raring to go, bringing you a fresh new season of episodes and content covering big events like the UN General Assembly, COP27, the US midterm elections. It's not going to be boring. We don't know what's going to happen. As ever, it's going to be incredibly consequential few months um, and it has to turn out the right way. So please continue to stick with us. We're going to leave you now. Thank you so much for being with us this season. It means everything. And we'll play you out now with a song from one of our loyal listeners. This is Jessica Braithwaite with her song, Hello, You Got My Heart. Thank you. See you. Bye. See you in a month. Bye. See you in September. Hi, I'm Jessica Braithwaite. I'm a TV weather presenter and a musician and a songwriter. My song is a little bit like this podcast because it oscillates between outrage and optimism. The verses are about what it's like to feel lost and angry in this mess and the bad news. 
But the chorus portrays the optimism of when we find a way together, when we are united, and when we know we have the power to make the world better. I wanted to help people experience, just for a moment, what that energy and that optimism actually feels like. Because when we have that feeling in our hearts, we are more powerful. As a weather presenter, I'm used to dealing with data. We can break down the science so the audiences can easily understand what's going on. As a musician, the toolkit is a little bit different, but just as vital because while facts go to the head, music goes to the heart. So introducing my new song, Hello, You Got My Heart. Oh 
So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The track you just heard playing us out for season five is Hello, You've Got My Heart by Jessica Braithwaite. So Jessica, as she mentioned, is not only a musical artist, but she's also a TV and weather presenter on Nine News in Australia. So shout out to all our friends in Australia. And this song is actually part of a bigger EP that she released this year. So there's a couple more songs for you to listen to this summer. Link to check that out in the show notes and to more of her music on Spotify and YouTube. She actually has a Christmas song that you'll want to listen to later in the year. So thank you, Jessica. Oh, I'm Clay, by the way, uh, producer of this podcast. I just want to mention, we keep receiving emails and feedback from listeners that you all love the section of the show that we have dedicated to music, and we agree that it's great. So we're going to keep music rolling into season six, so plenty more music coming your way end of summer and into the fall. I'm very excited about this. Yes! Okay, uh, the time has come to close this season out and um i know you heard in the episode you know what a year it's been and yeah you've lived through it so you know but from behind the scenes i just want to highlight that um i just want to take a minute and say that it is the utmost privilege to make this podcast with our team we read all of our reviews and listener feedback that comes in and your kind words your constructive criticism your open sharing about how you're translating, you know, what we're broadcasting into practical action in your communities, your families, your schools and businesses, and even governments, you know, not a day goes by where we aren't thinking about how your stubborn optimism is actively creating a better world that we get to live in. So thank you for listening to our podcast and this isn't goodbye. This is just see you later (laughs) because Season six begins in September. I can't spill any beans um, because that would be food waste. No, I actually legally can't, but I've mentioned it before. We have so much planned for you, including this one thing I really want to tell you about, but I can't. But here's a clue. Um, We will have a new word on our show art a new word go think about that for a month um but but i can't tell you anymore there will be a new word (laughs) sorry okay what are you gonna do this summer you know this is our 166th episode not including like bonuses and stuff and our entire archive of episodes is linked to in the show notes i'm sure that at least one of our guest clips on today's episode piqued your interest and almost every one of them has an entire episode with that guest featured for like 25 30 minutes so enjoy the break however you please Uh, but these episodes are here for you they're all available and you can listen at any time that's kind of the magic of podcasting and i'm about to say goodbye for a little bit but before you go please do us a favor hit subscribe or follow on your podcast player because that way you won't miss the first episode when we come back in September. And if you liked season five, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really means the world. And we read every single one. So your message is getting to us. Thank you for doing that. Wow, am I really about to say goodbye for a month? Okay, I'm off to go rest 
my mind for a bit. Read some books, make some music, watch a movie or two. I think my wife and my son and I are going to go have dinner with our neighbors outside. Hey, I might even try a sensory deprivation tank. I think I'm going to do that. Um, I hope you have a great August. And I, along with the rest of the Outrage and Optimism team, will return in September right back here. And looking forward to it. All right. See you then. Wait, when did the, when did the music end? <laughs> Oops. See you next season. <laughs>